Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews. How are you all? Uh, well, yes, this week. So last week I recounted my initial experience of using these fake hand drops. And the problem was I didn't stop and think, yeah, that that's a lesson not to use it again. So I chose, well, it was like 36 hours before my birthday. And it was a special big birthday, but uh, the, the night before the night before, if that makes sense. Um, and I thought, yeah, I'm going to try it again. I won't use as many drops. It'll be fine. Um, and that it's fair to say that it didn't work. And the extent of it not working developed. So by the time it was my birthday, I had the combination of my face well, with just like lines, like tram lines coming down my nose um, and sort of splodges on my head. And then clearly because, uh, just to recap, if you didn't listen last week, who can blame you? These are some drops that you get that you add to your moisturiser and it turns it into sort of like fake tan, which I thought was a really good idea. So the problem was because I'd added it to my moisturiser and put my moisturiser on my face, my brain didn't set off the warning bell of, Philippa, remember to wash your hands because otherwise your hands will look like oranges. And uh, yes, so the day before my birthday, when I woke up and looked at my hands, I realised the damage. And unbelievably, the situation worsened over the next 24 hours. So on my birthday, went out for a lovely lunch, lovely day. I had to keep my hands on my knees the whole time, on my legs the whole time, because if I lifted them up, the pads, I mean, still today, it looks it looks like I've got gravy granules and ground them up in my hands or coffee granules, ground them up in my hands and rubbed them in. And they're just I don't know if I'll ever get these stains out. How is it that my face is a completely different colour? Anyway, so that's that's where we are. My face. I looked at. Yeah, I did actually look in the mirror today. Not a big fan of looking in the mirror. Looked in the mirror today. Yeah, it looks like, you know, those days on the beach, on a British beach, I hasten to say, when the wind has been blowing so much, you've got more sand in your face and in your skin than you've been able to walk on. And it's sort of you've got very hot, but not because you're having a lovely time in the sun, but just it's all a bit stressed. That's that's how I look, this sort of glow on my face that's not not normal not human just looks very worrying indeed so there we go onwards and upwards I have now got those fake tan drops out and they're going in the bin because that was a monumentally a bad idea and it will not it will not reoccur definitely not unless I just need to make people laugh and then it would because it made a lot of people laugh on my birthday. So there we go. There's there's the joy. But we have books. We have five books. Um, we have some interesting, some thought provoking, some challenging and one that was a bit rubbish. <laughs> That's basically where we are. Um, so, so let's go through them all. So the first one we've got is The Late Train to Gypsy Hill 
by Alan Johnson. Luckily enough, we've got Alan coming on to talk to us about that book. Then we've got Felix Ever After by Kason Callender. Then we've got uh, Illumine by Amy Kaufman and Jay Christophe. We've got A Line to Kill by Anthony Horowitz. That's an audio book. Well, that's the version I listened to it on. And then we've got Murder on Mystique by Anne Glenn Connor. So there we go. That's the the range of books. Um, I think let's get stuck into the late train to Gypsy Hill. Are you sitting comfortably? Gary Nelson has a routine for the commute to his rather dull job in the city. Each day he watches as a woman on the train applies her makeup in a ritual he now knows by heart. He's never dared to strike up a conversation, but maybe one day. Then one evening on the late train to Gypsy Hill... The woman invites him to take the empty seat beside her. Fiddling with her mascara, she holds up the mirror and Gary reads the words, Help me, scrawled in sticky black letters on the glass. From that moment, Gary's life is turned on its head. He finds himself on the run from the Russian mafia, the FSB and even the Metropolitan Police, all because of what this mysterious young woman may have witnessed. In the race to find the truth, Gary discovers there is a lot more to her than meets the eye. And of course, Alan Johnson, as I'm sure you know, he was a Labour MP for about 20 years. Um, He served in five cabinet positions, health secretary, home secretary, education secretary. And although he's published, written and published some non-fiction books, this is his first fiction book. So I'm very keen to talk to him about that and the difference and, and the story and all of that. But, you know, I like to do first sentences. So let's... Go to the first sentence. Friday the 10th of July. There is a cat in the Strand Hotel that is said to be 50 years old. You see, I really want to read you the whole page because I think it's a really good uh, opening page. But, uh, but I won't. I won't. I just do first sentences. Let's stick to the rules, Philippa. So let's go and talk to Alan now. So Alan Johnson, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi. Pleasure, Philippa. It was really good to be with you. Well, I wanted to talk to you about, about this fascinating book. I, an obvious first question, but what gave you the idea for this, this book? The idea was Litvinenko, but it is totally fiction. You know, uh, anyone who knows about Litvinenko and has been good books written on it. Luke Harding of The Guardian did a mm. uh, very dangerous poison, I think it was called which I read and I acknowledge in the book, but my idea when that happened, and I was in the cabinet, it was 2006, I I was education secretary. So I was a long way away, you know, the home secretary and uh, the people that were dealing with it. But I wondered, you know, when I heard uh, it was served this poison tea in a London uh, hotel, it was the Millennium Hotel. um, uh, I thought what would have happened if the waitress got the order mixed up or the waitress ended up serving the poison tea to the would-be poisoner. Mm. That idea just went around in my mind. At the same time, I'd begun to notice, because this was post-2010, when I was no longer a minister, mm. and, and therefore I didn't have a government car. I drove around in a government car for 11 years. And when I went back to travelling on the train from Gypsy Hill to Victoria to walk down Victoria Street, to um to parliament i noticed something i hadn't noticed before and i don't know whether it had grown in that interim decade but the way women apply their makeup <laughs> on the train full makeup and i i was fascinated by you know this this process this procedure i asked my wife to just take me through how it all went um so at the same time as having this idea about someone a waitress serving the wrong uh, coffee or tea, I, I kind of knew who the waitress was going to be. It was going to be someone, you know, a very attractive woman coming in on the train, applying her makeup, which is how my hero of the book, Gary Nelson, who's the kind of innocent abroad in this, um, notices her and wants to talk to her. And when he does and she asks for his help, he's thrust into this world of espionage and death and murder and blood and guts and all the things that you need in a in a British thriller. <laughs> I'm really interested though because you have clearly come across such experiences and such characters in real life as a as a politician and all that you're involved with. It must be 
quite a challenge because there must be so much that you want to get across, but it, equally this is fiction. And so you're having to do it in a different way. Um, not really. I mean, I, the book, you know, the politics is peripheral, as you know, if you've read it. I mean, it essentially is a mystery, a thriller, a love story. And the politics doesn't intrude for those of your listeners who kind of wouldn't pick up a political book if they were had a gun to their head. Um, so, so that's peripheral. Mm. The kind of issue around Russian organised crime and the way that the Russian state has changed since Putin became president. Putin's kind of in the book, but never mentioned as Putin. He's always called the president. Um, you know, that's been well documented. A, a, a book by Catherine Belton called Putin's People, which I also acknowledge in the book. Uh, and I say in the, in my acknowledgement that what Catherine taught me was my imagine wherever my imagination went it 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 wouldn't uh be unrealistic compared to what mm. is happening now with as crime and Russia I mean you know uh, Salisbury happened just about the time I was kind of thinking more about writing this uh so so the points I wanted to get across and this sounds really strange but I wanted to kind of be fair to the Russians in the sense that they've got this character, they've got this organized crime group called Krobni Bratia, which is Russian for blood brothers. And they see it as very much restoring the dignity of the Russian state. They were a superpower. Then the Berlin Wall fell, then communism went, totalitarianism went, and Yeltsin came in and it was like mm. gold rush. You know, everything was privatized. People got rich very quickly. Banks were created. And in a sense, you know, for the Russian people, this was demeaning to them. Uh, Yeltsin was demeaning to them. And in a way, I'm not making them the heroes of this, but I'm trying to explain mm -hmm. it from a Russian perspective as well. You know, this all happens in the book in 20, it's set in 2015, which was just after the annexation of Crimea. But, you know, Crimea was given to Ukraine by the Russian Soviet state. The USSR, the Politburo, decided, because Khrushchev came from Ukraine, that they should be given as a gift Crimea in the late 50s. Now, when you know that, you understand more why the Russian people felt that Putin was right yes. to seize yeah. it back, you know? So on issues like that, I'm trying to be fair and balanced. But, you know, it's more... It's more thriller than it is anything to do with political insight. Yeah, and I was interested in this sort of spy thriller, if we're being basic about it, the the the, the pace of the of the book and the twists and the turns. When you're reading fiction books yourself, are you normally automatically going for the, the spy genre or the thriller, or, or is there a range of books? Um, well, this was my first uh, attempt. Yes, fiction. yes. I'm the second attempt now. But when you're reading them, when I'm when I'm reading them, I think it was more not what I've read. I've read a lot of Maigret over the mm. years. George Chamon. He's my he's my <laughs> ideal, uh, if you like, detective writer. But actually, the twists and turns came more from television, watching things like Line of Beauty, and realizing how. Ah. how if you lead the viewing public <laughs> one path you know misleading yeah <laughs> years as a politician where the biggest crime is to mislead the parliament or mislead now it's my job to mislead people so those yeah. red herrings and all that yeah I was quite fascinated by and I'm you know I, I wanted it to have twists and turns I wanted people to uh to say oh I didn't expect that but most of all I wanted to them to empathize with the characters to believe the characters and i that to me is the important thing about about fiction if you spend time constructing the foundation so that the characters are believable you can make them do pretty unbelievable things and the readers will will come with you and i really felt that that the the characters were so strong and vivid did they all come to you as a group when you started planning the book or did you, they come to you one by one um, they came to me as as a duo in the sense of Arena, the waitress, yes. and Gary Nelson, who's the innocent abroad. Uh, Louise Mangan, who's the detective in there, yeah, that came to me as I was kind of writing the book. I thought, you know, can I make this a woman detective and can I make her, 
you know, a character like Gary's mum that that's you know relates to Gary and is and is uh, I, I think moral enough not to fall for this advice she's getting from the rest of the police. Look, this is Russians poisoning. Mm. What have we got to do with us? Let us concentrate on important things like knife crime. Let the Russians deal with it. You know, she had to have a strong enough character to stand up to that. Um, so no, they didn't come to me all at once, but uh, the Russians as well, that was a and that was a joy, you know, getting the Russians uh, all together. Cause, um, cause you know, what I did for the names, I, I would go to the kind of Russian Olympic baseball team and or Olympic basketball team. Oh, and, yes. And take a Christian name from one and a surname from the other. Or first name and second name. Um, and put them together but uh, yeah that was I mean it was such the whole thing was just a joy you know I enjoyed writing fiction much more than I enjoyed writing memoir and I enjoyed writing memoir a lot so you know see how much I enjoyed fiction. That's that's really interesting and and when you're writing non-fiction obviously you're the what you've written about it stays with you but I'm interested when you when you've written this your first fiction book how much the characters stayed with you of that, because that's in your own imagination. Yeah, they do. You know, I used to think it was quite, I mean, I've read a lot of books and been to a lot of um, book festivals. And when I, when I used to listen to writers of fiction saying, well, I became very attached to this character, they became a real person to me. I would kind of think, oh, it's a bit poncy, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And now. Well, no, they, they do. They do. You know, Gary um, and Gary's mum and, you know, Knuckles and the Flatboots and Melissa and all those, they're very real people to me. Yeah. Which means they're sounding poncy, just like, <laughs> <laughs> just like a proper fiction writer should. No, don't worry. You're not wearing a silk scarf and calling me darling. So you're, you're, you're fine. <laughs> and I'm interested in all the roles that you had in your political life and perhaps possibly, um, particularly as Home Secretary, there must have been a lot of things that you saw and heard that you couldn't speak about. And when you're writing your nonfiction, perhaps you're more limited still on those. But can you sort of purge yourself of those a bit when you're writing fiction? No, I think you have to be absolutely clear that, you know, what I saw and what I heard and the amazing things I saw and heard as Home Secretary, I must never speak about. And maybe at some stage not in this book but maybe in some book I could disguise part of it uh, but you know you have to be true to that you've signed the official secrets it's a very important part of what you do in mm -hmm. government so on non-fiction for instance the long and winding road which was the final part of my trilogy um I end it just as I become home secretary you know uh and so there was still a lot of mileage mm -hmm. to go particularly my time as home secretary but I thought, you know, if I write about that, I've got to clear it all through the cabinet office. I've got to write something that is virtually fictitious because I can't write what actually happened. Um, so basically, as I've said before, I could have written The Late Train to Gypsy Hill if I'd never been Home Secretary. There is nothing in there that is revealing uh, and that shouldn't be revealed. The only thing I suppose where I did have an advantage is how the police interact with anti-terrorism, counter-terrorism, and how MI5 and MI6 work, you know, along yeah. different timelines and all of that. Um, so, you know, I hope I've captured some of that. So I should stop over-analyzing the book and trying to <laughs> <laughs> work out the truth. No, I like a bit of over-analysis. <laughs> oh, well, I'm head of over-analysis, so that, that's fine. Um, how did you plot this book out? How Was it a, an extensive handwritten document, or was it just you were, as you were thinking it, you were writing it? Um, I, the way I do it, and I do, you talk to loads of writers, I, I, you know, I don't think any two writers do it the same way. I mean, I listen to the Anne Cleves at Harrogate, who I love, by the way. Oh, ah, yes. Harrogate Festival. And she was being interviewed by Steph McGovern and an audience member asked her the question you've asked me. And she said, I never plot the book at all. I just start and it takes me where it takes me. And Steph said, Steph McGovern said, oh, you must know who done it. And Anne said something that really stayed in my mind. She said, look, if I know who done it, it's unfair on my detective. We have to solve it together. 
she said, which I, I mean, you yeah. have a lot of skill to be able to do that. Yeah. For me, I jotted down because you need to know, you know, the names of your characters and not forget them or when they were born and get the get the timing right. So, you know, this was post uh, annexation of Crimea. I had to make sure that was right. Um, and I knew how it would open that scene in the Strand Hotel. And I thought I knew how it was end, how it would end, although I changed that completely because it's oh. a sure Gary's dad, which I won't give anything away. Yeah. But Gary's dad was going to be a major feature in the book. And then I decided that he wouldn't be. Um, so you do change it as you go along. I don't know how many fiction writers have done that. I mean, who who would be meticulous enough to plot every move before you even start. I mean, you're on a deadline anyway. You, know, <laughs> you never get the bloody thing finished. <laughs> and you have to read some stuff to as background uh, to some of this. So, no, it was having got a basic skeleton, away I went, and I found the delight in in changing things as, a, as I went along. Um, yeah. And is that, I mean, it varies. I find a lot of authors writing their first fiction book are more sort of seat of the pants, uh, just live and breathe the story as it's happening. And then as the constraints of deadlines and editorial teams happen, they become at times um, more uh, plot driven, you know, that they're plotting it out a lot more, but it varies. And often, stories that have a lot of energy are the ones that haven't been plotted in great detail. Right. But having said that, uh, I mean, CJ Sansom, who writes sort of historical crime books, I believe he writes his plots uh, that he prepares are 30,000 words. Yeah, well. So everyone's different. And that's the glorious thing about it, you know. Back to that, yeah. I, um, I mean, I would, um, I, I would. My problem is, I found that I used up a lot of my plot. And I looked at the word count, and it was 40,000 <laughs> 40, words. Oh, you know? no. I mean, you can do that. You yeah. see, you know, this plot is in your plot, 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 plot. Whereas if you relax a bit and sort of flesh out the characters and all of that, you know, you don't, you, you don't get through most of your plot when you're only a little bit yeah. through well you know i mean it has to be about 80,000 words to make it a novel yes it would be quite a short book a novella yeah, a, yeah, a novella maybe yeah. a story so how did you then manage the pace because it is a very pacey book was that something that you had to go back and but then i suppose if if at its heart it's it was a short book there's there's lots of pace there and then it was just the characters as you say that you were enriching yeah um well i originally didn't have the russian dimension you know russians were there but i didn't have any russian characters right. and that's where i got too far into the plot with that and then once i developed the russian characters and had their perspective it i think it became a better book i mean that's for others to judge but it certainly helped me to um uh, to ensure that there was more of a foundation there, you know, that the reader wasn't being hurried through this. As for the fast pace, I like this idea of getting the reader up like on a uh, on one of those, uh, what do you call them, the, the, at the fairground. At yes, the yeah, yeah, absolutely, like a roller coaster going up roller and down and, and building up. Them up quite slowly, and they've got you know looking at the view, and they're quite interested in the characters and all that. And then you run down, and there's a and I tried to do that a couple of times uh, in the book. And you know, I wanted it to be pacey where it needed to be pacey, but more slow and deliberate when you're building up the characters. And you say you really enjoyed writing fiction, uh, and yet you've written so much non fiction. I suppose I have to ask. Why has it taken you so long to, to do fiction? Well, because my my original publisher, so I've got two, two publishers here. So Transworld, which is Penguin Random House, quite understandably, when this boy, which was my childhood memoir, mm. and it ends when I'm 18, and there wasn't going to be any other books after that, but it went very well. And as my publisher said, look, you can't just leave it there. You have to say, mm -hmm. how did you get from there to, you know, to there? So then, please, Mr. Postman, the idea there. And I was enthused by that because I was talking about 
a post office when it when you know there was no internet and there was no practically no other way to communicate that was an interesting story and I was a small part of it and then having done that you had to do the final bit going into parliament the bit I dread because I can't stand reading political memoirs I mean they're usually politicians you know going back to esoteric issues that everyone's forgotten about refight it and you know um make themselves right on everything uh i hated that uh as as one of the reviewers said i'd only spent 40 pages on on my 11 years as a government minister that was quite deliberate now then i wanted to do fiction and it's still an answer to your question philip a long-winded uh, as every politician always is my agent um claire alexander said you've said a lot about how important music is to you and she came up with the idea of a music memoir, which really enthused me about a different chapter headed by a piece of music and what music meant. Mm. And there again, as you're much younger than me, baby boomers went through that incredible period of, you know, the creation of rock and roll, if you like, and then the Beatles and all of that. And I was in bands when I was a teenager. And so, so I had this, I wanted to get on with this fiction. I had the idea. But Claire's idea for what became in my life, a music memoir, took precedence, got the deal. That was all done with Transworld. Then I wanted to write the fiction and would not listen to any, you know, oh, but you've still right. got some stories to tell. You know, you don't. You know, I wanted, I was sick of writing about myself, sick of, you know, all of that. And fiction was the rock face. You know, I, people would say, oh, you've won these literary prizes, which was great. I didn't think of myself as a writer because a writer has to develop plot and character in my view. So that was the rock face that had to be climbed. And I'm interested because, uh, okay, you're, you've had your first fiction book published in the lead up, in the run up to that publication day. And I suppose the first few weeks was the, was it different? Has it been, has the journey been different? Yes, it's been different in the sense that there is a whole circuit of crime and thriller mm. festival that I didn't know anything about. Yeah. I think different in the sense that I find it quite interesting, you know, that people like Anne Cleves, although she never expressed this herself, but they must feel a little bit undervalued as writers because, you know, you get books that are placed in this box called thrillers and they'll never win a I never have won a Booker. They'll never win a Nobel Prize for Literature. You know, Jules Chimenon was always very upset that his Maigret novels, which yes. are beautifully written, never got him anywhere near what he wanted. Um, and so you notice that, and you notice as a result of that there's a more of a camaraderie amongst writers and a more, uh, you know, uh, a more conciliatory atmosphere amongst writers of crime uh, and fiction. I noticed that. Uh, aside from that, you're just even more desperate to know how it's going to go with the reviewers, you know, because it's yes. fiction. Yes, and and that's again what I find interesting that as it's fiction, it's in a way it's more of you, but it's less of you if you know what I mean. And so that yeah. must be quite ner nerving as you approach publication day. Yeah, I think more of you. I think it's more of you, isn't it? Because. Mm you know, you get under the skin in fiction you, yeah, and some of the things come through. I've got a, my lovely colleague, Diana Johnson, who's the MP for North Hull. I was the MP for West Hull. She reviewed it for the House magazine and she said to me, oh, Gary is you. Now, Gary is not me in, in my mind. <laughs> I don't think you can stop bits of you, Gary Nelson, the hero of the book, you can't stop bits of you coming out in the fiction, you know, much though you might try. Yes, and it's your it's your baby. It's something that you have created yourself, and uh, it's yeah. As I said, so it's even more of you. That's interesting, and and you're right that, that no thriller usually wins the Booker Prize, and yet what's the best selling genre? I mean, it, it's, it's an incredible now, an incredible uh, you know a re resurgence. Of, yes, uh, yeah. How much involvement did you have with the cover design? Were, were you uh, deeply well, it's brilliant <laughs> except you know to, uh, so I'm with wildfire uh, for this book which is terrific and for the next book and uh, I just love them I mean they've got this hunger you know they're, they're a young publisher uh, when they sent me that design for the cover of Lake Train to Gypsy Hill 
blew me away. I mean, it's a fabulous cover, mm. uh, isn't it? I mean, you know, yeah. you don't have to comment on anything else. Adam. The cover is just is just wonderful. And all the little audio things they did and the stuff on social media was great fun, but I didn't have anything to do with that. Yeah, well, no, it's absolutely great. I'm, I don't know why I'm holding it up, but there we go, I'm holding it up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful to see. And where do you write best? Because looking at you, people listening obviously can't see it, but you've got this wonderful office that you're sitting in, very neat and ordered. Is that where you write best? Yeah, yeah and I'm looking out onto the East Yorkshire countryside. East Yorkshire and North Lincolnshire, about 100 yards up the road. So I'm right on the border, just fields and uh, the River Trent over there. And it's beautiful. So it's a lovely, it's a lovely location to write from. And if you go to some other lovely locations, uh, you find that you're always looking at the scenery. I mean, here, I know the scenery, you know, it's where I live. Whereas if you think, oh, let's let's go off to somewhere exotic in Spain and right there, I think you'd be too captivated by the scenery. So, no, this works for me and writing early in the morning, as early as I can. Oh, right. That's interesting. 7.30, yeah. So and, it's the same pattern. And how many words a day do you, do you set yourself or is it not like that? I don't set myself. No, not Anthony Trollope or every thousand words every half hour or something. Uh, no, I just write for three or four hours, usually four rather than three, uh, unless I'm not in the mood. And then, you know, it's no good sitting there because nothing's going to come to you. Um, so I do it by time. I spend three or four hours, no matter how many words come up. And I do it longhand and then put it onto the... Oh, how interesting. Yeah. yeah we, and, well, once again, you're the expert on this, Philip, because you, you talk to so many writers. But to me... There has to be the connection between the hand and the brain. And yes, the you're, you're one of uh, one of a few that do it, but those yeah. that do are all very prominent, well-known authors. So that's interesting. And often, when you then type it up, you're almost doing the first edit. Oh, you are definitely, are definitely first and second sometimes because mm -hmm. you go back to it when it's you know how it will look to the reader rather than do a scroll, uh, and you know you tend to. Every time you look at it, you see something that you might want to change a bit. So with the authors that do that, that handwrite it first, they have often there's a particular fountain pen. And with each book, there's a particular they will have a special notebook to write that in. Are you are you the same? Uh, yeah, I was. I'm definitely the same about the notebook. Pucker pads. I get <laughs> pucker pads do well out of me. <laughs> and it, I used to be very fussy about the pen. I used to use. And I've got a stack of them here, uh, disposable fountain pens. Ah. I use them as an MP as well, because I was always losing my pen. Uh, yes. pens and they're sentimental value. You don't want to lose them. So you keep them at home and you take the, because I like writing with a fountain pen, you mm. take the disposable fountain pens out with you. So I would tell, you know, the Hay Festival, which you saw me at uh, when I was doing the memoirs, I would say I always write on a pack, pack of pad with a disposable fountain pen. I've ditched the disposable fountain pen. I found that, you know, ballpoints are equally, ballpoints are a bit quicker as well. You can write more quickly with. Oh, that's so interesting for someone that was so committed to a fountain pen. I'm a fountain pen person myself as well. And it, it just doesn't work for me if I'm using yeah. it. Uh, well, but if I'm writing a letter to someone, you know, yes. then a fountain pen, uh, you know, I'm a committed fountain pen user, but. For the you know the basic job of writing, which Trollope, of course, was keen to tell Victorian, yeah. you know, I'm just like a bootmaker. I'm just you know I'm doing a job, which which they were horrified at because you're supposed to get the news and all that. <laughs> but I I'm with Trollope on this. You know, it's a basic job you have to do, and in that sense, I think the ballpoint, the switch to the ballpoints worked for me. Fascinating. So you you've mentioned that there's a, another book in progress. Can you tell us anything about that yet, or, or, or are we not? Only that, I don't think my publisher will mind. You know, the the deal was that uh, Detective Superintendent Mangan has to be in the second. One. Ah, yes, great. She got promoted in the first one to assistant commissioner, so uh, we'll have to wait to see what happens to her there, because assistant commissioners don't generally feature in you know. Yes literature they're too high up yeah. uh, but I think I found a way around that oh. so yeah uh, 
that's uh, that's great fun. I'm halfway through it. And when will we get this this in our hands? How long will it take? Well, my publisher wants it out next September. So, um, yeah, let's hope I can stick to that and I don't mess up their plans by my... Not a lack of diligence, I have to say, but because, you know, it takes longer to... This is the other thing. It takes longer to write fiction than memoirs. Memoirs, you know the characters, you know the plot. Yes, yeah. You're working out the plot and sometimes you want to change the plot means, I think, always fiction takes longer. Mm. That's my excuse for my... (laughs) Anyway, I'll get my... Excuse me early. Yeah, if your editor's listening to this, that's why. Yes, yeah. And I should leave you to to get back to writing because uh, I can't wait to, to read the, the next one. So, Alan Johnson, author of The Late Train to Gypsy Hill, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Philippa. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, the next book is something quite different. I would never have picked this up. I hadn't even heard of it, but I'm really glad I did read it. It's called Felix Ever After by Kaysen uh, Callender. And I got to read this because a book club um, I subscribed to, so Lauren and the Books from YouTube, this was her book club choice for the month. Um, And we're meeting online in a couple of days to talk about it. So I don't know what other people think of it yet. So that'll be very interesting. Um, It's got a lovely sprayed edge, beautiful bright colours. Let me read you the blurb. Felix Love has never been in love. And yes, he's painfully aware of the irony. He desperately wants to know what it's like and why it seems so easy for everyone but him to find someone. What's worse is that even though he's proud of his identity, Felix also secretly fears that he's one marginalisation too many, black, queer and transgender, to ever get his own happily ever after. When an anonymous student begins sending him transphobic messages after publicly posting Felix's dead name alongside images of him before he's transitioned, Felix comes up with a plan for revenge. What he doesn't count on, his catfish scenario landing him in a quasi-love triangle. But as he navigates his complicated feelings, Felix begins the journey of questioning and self-discovery that helps redefine his most important relationship, how he feels about himself. Yes, sorry. Right. OK, first, first sentence. We push open the apartment building's glass door and out into the yellow sunshine that's a little too cheerful and bright. I love this book. 
it was I unexpectedly loved it because I I don't know some of the books that they choose for the book club are not my sort of thing so I sort of got in the rut of thinking that I wasn't going to enjoy it but this one I was compelled to read it I wanted to know what was happening it's not it's not a romance book. It's more about how you love yourself and how Felix loves themselves. And I just thought it was moving. It was interesting. I learned a lot. I could visualise so much. I could see Felix. I could see their home situation, college situation. I don't know. It, yes, it's YA. Um, but Felix themselves are, oh, gosh, about 17. So it's sort of older YA. And some of the um, sort of subject matter is very simple and some of it's more complex. So I think different age ranges can get a lot out of it. But it, it's a book that I think we should be reading and celebrating. And, um, yeah, really captivating. I thought it was I thought it was a great book. Really enjoyed that one. So there we go. Felix Ever After by Case and Calendar. Next we come on to which one shall I do next? Oh, I'm going to do Anthony Horowitz. Now, A Line to Kill is the third in the series of well, it, it's a different sort of book. Um because it has this private investigator, Daniel Hawthorne. And the book is about Anthony Horowitz being the author of these books. It's really bizarre. I started to listen to it on audiobook and I've continued that. It's got the same narrator. And I really enjoy it because um, the investigator, Daniel Hawthorne, he can be quite difficult and sort of acerbic and... Um, I don't know, just the relationship between him and the character Anthony Horowitz is very interesting. And I think that comes across really well in the audio book. The narrator adds to adds to it, doesn't detract from it. Um, I think they're my favourite series by Anthony Horowitz. Um, let, OK, let, let's do the blurb. There has never been a murder on Alderney. It's a tiny island, just three miles long and a mile and a half wide. The perfect location for a brand new literary festival. Private investigator Daniel Hawthorne has been invited to talk about his new book. The writer, Anthony Horowitz, travels with him. Very soon they discover that all is not as it should be. Alderney is in turmoil over a planned power line that will cut through it, desecrating a war cemetery and turning neighbour against neighbour. The visiting authors, including a blind medium, a French performance poet and a celebrity chef, seem to be harbouring any number of unpleasant secrets. When the festival's wealthy sponsor is found brutally killed, Alderney goes into lockdown and Hawthorne knows that he doesn't have to look too far for suspects. There's no escape. The killer is still on the island and there's about to be a second death. Mm. Now, first sentence... Um, yeah, I'm going to do the first sentence. It's it's interesting because it's just setting up uh, a meeting that Anthony Horowitz is going to have with Hawthorne at the, at the publishers. So the chapter one is called An Invitation. My publishers, Penguin Random House, have offices on the Vauxhall Bridge Road, the other side of Victoria. I know I like the second sentence. It's a short one. We're going to include it. It's an odd part of London. I like that. Within a few sentences, you're already intrigued, involved and wanting and wanting to read more. As I say, I listen to the audiobook and I would thoroughly recommend that. And listen, if you haven't read the first two in the series, don't worry about it. Um, I think you can come to this one just and get just as much from it. It's an enjoyable series of books where you don't need to remember anything really from the ones that have gone before. And yet you do remember them because the characters are so interesting. Uh, I just find it fascinating that Anthony Horowitz can write books where he is he is poking fun at himself. And I think that's such a sort of honest, commendable approach to take. So, yeah, Excellent. Enjoyed that one. And then we've got two books left and only one of those did I enjoy. Um, this book is called Illumini by Amy Kaufman and Jay Kristoff. Um, it's the most fascinating different type of book 
I actually listened to the story. Mo well, most of it was uh, I had an audio book version as well. But the book is fabulous. This is OK. What is it? It's um, science fiction. It's YA. Um, but the audio book is in places like a drama as well. Uh, oh, yeah, I thought it was really, really good. Actually, now I'm thinking about it, I want to go and listen or read to the next one straight away. So there we go. Uh, the year is 2575 and two mega corporations are at war over a planet that's little more than an ice-covered speck. Too bad nobody thought to warn the people living on it. With enemy fire raining down on them, Ezra and Cady have to make their escape on the evacuating fleet. But their troubles are just beginning. A deadly plague has broken out on one of the spaceships and it is mutating with terrifying results. Their ship's protection is seriously flawed. No one will say what is going on. As KD hacks into a tangled web of data to find the truth, it's clear only one person can help her, Ezra. And the only problem with that is they split up before all this trouble started and she isn't supposed to be talking to him. Um, I thought it was amazing because some parts are done as interviews, some parts are done as almost like a script of a, of a play, some parts are reports. If you are stuck and a bit bored with just reading a book in the normal way, you get so many different mediums in this. And even the pages are different colours, there's emails. I thought I thought it was great and they adapt that so well for the audiobook. I actually picked this up at the Cheltenham Literary Festival a few years ago. Um and and I thought it I thought it was great. It is different to any other book that I've read. You know me. I love I love the idea of reading science fiction, but sometimes I struggle with it because I can't visualize it. And this I just did. Um, it was as close to as a film as I think you would get. Uh, you're interested in what will happen. It's got the twists. It's got the stories, the characters, the the pace. So, yes, a good book. There we go. Um, and now we come on to the last one. <sighs> Murder on Mustique. So there's trouble in paradise. Why did I pick up this book? I picked it up because Anne Glenn Connor had done very well. She'd written uh, Lady in Waiting and it was about her being Lady in Waiting to Princess Margaret, um, a role she kept for, oh gosh, decades. Um, and that was supposed to be very good and very commendable, blah, blah, blah. So then this is where she's turned her hand to writing fiction. Um, and it just has got this lovely image on the, the front of the book of this sort of tropical island um, and the the beach and the, the lights of a holiday. And it just looked really nice. And I thought that could be a nice, easy to read, easy crime. Uh, it, it just it didn't captivate me. The thing that captivated me most was the, the cover, the book cover. Um, nothing else really hit it. I whizzed through it, not because I was enjoying it, but because I just thought I wanted it to be over. Um, it didn't grip me. It didn't. You know how some um, easy crime still interests you because it's funny and I don't know, it's sometimes a bit oddball. If this was just not for me. Um, clearly, it suits a lot of other people. Maybe it was the day I picked it up. But uh, yeah, I shouldn't. I shouldn't have picked it up. I had looked at it a few times before and, and not put it in my hand. But this time I did. And there we go. Well, right. I need to do the blurb for you. Oh, I didn't do the first sentence for Illumini, did I? Oh, my goodness. What am I thinking of? I'm so sorry. It's been a bit of a frazzle this morning. And my hands are quite sore <laughs> because I've been scraping them so much to get this fake tan off. Anyway, I'm just going to do the first page. So I'm just going to read you the first sentence. And this is a memo. So I'll, I'll memorandum for executive director. And it says who it's from and the subject Alexander Dossier. So here's the file that almost killed me, director. I won't bore you with the tally of databases plundered, light years jumped or cute sniffling orphans created in its compilation. Our fee already reflects the level of difficulty. So there we go. Anyway, sorry. That's Illumini. And now we come to the blurb for Murder on Mystique. 
The residents of Mystique can only watch and wait as tropical storm Cristobal edges towards them across the Atlantic. And when American heiress Amanda Fortini heads out for a morning swim and doesn't return, danger seems to surround the island. Amanda's friend Lily is suspicious and scared, and so she asks for help from the person she trusts the most, her godmother. Lady Veronica Blake knows all Mystique's secrets. She would never desert a loved one in need and she can keep a cool head in a crisis. Meanwhile, Detective Sergeant Solomon Nile, the island's only fully trained police officer, is on the trail of the killer. But the local community isn't cooperating. He desperately needs Lady V's insights to help him solve the mystery before the storm hits. Now, first sentence... Friday the 13th of September 2002, and that's the prologue. It's 5am when Amanda Fortini strolls through the palm trees in a red bikini to Britannia Bay. So, as I say, not for me, but I'm sure for lots of other people. So there we go. Anyway, so we've, we've got a mixture of books, haven't we? We've got some decent ones here. Um, and let's just do a recap. So The Late Train to Gypsy Hill by Alan Johnson. Felix Ever After by Kaysen Callender. Oh, we've also had, of course, Anthony Horowitz, A Line to Kill. Uh, we've had Illumini by Amy Kaufman and Jay Christophe. And Murder on Mustique by Anne Glenn Connor. Quite a few books to choose from. Another interesting book coming up next week. Quite an emotional one to talk about. So there we go. Um Yes, I'm going to go off because I now want to read the second book following on from Illumini. So I shall go and do that. I shall promise myself to throw that fake tan away and I will see you again next week. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. 